The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times, funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. My name is Joanna Brooks, and I work at San Diego State University, where I serve as an associate vice president in support of faculty. And one part of my job is to listen and figure out how the university can provide the best possible circumstances to help faculty do what they do best, which is creating new knowledge and helping students learn how to do the same. My happiest moments on the job come when I see our ever more diverse cohort of professors from chemists to artists to information systems experts do their work with a sense of empowerment and satisfaction. And ever since COVID-19 hit, even as I've seen faculty do amazing things like learning to teach online virtually overnight, I've been hearing stress and worry and sadness, especially from faculty with children at home. A few weeks ago, I asked my staff to generate a list of our junior faculty members who'd been on parental leave during the pandemic. I mean, can you imagine having a baby during a pandemic in a city that might be thousands of miles from home and you can't get a relative on the plane to come walk you through those first painful days and weeks or months? We have colleagues who gave birth just last semester, and they have toddlers and school-aged children at home and classes full of students who are struggling to find a hot spot or a space in their own home where they can do their schoolwork uh, with some level of concentration. And these colleagues also have labs or clinics or projects they've literally had to abandon for the time being. Initial data published in places like Nature and Inside Higher Education suggests that a pandemic may be having a disproportionate impact on women scholars with children. Research suggests that during these times, in many households, even egalitarian ones, the historic imbalance of responsibilities is getting worse, not better. Now, SDSU has done a good job, I think, extending considerations to faculty whose careers have been impacted. We've made it possible for every junior faculty who wants it to request for an extension of their tenure clock. We have a ton of resources now available and under development through instructional technology services, through the Center for Teaching and Learning, the Center for Inclusive Excellence, to help faculty teach online. But there is more to be done, and some things faculty can only do for ourselves. Now, one of the things I love about our profession is our collegiality, our professional obligation to show up for each other, whether that means serving on a dissertation committee, reading and reviewing each other's research, or walking each other through the many phases of life a faculty career entails. Grassroots leadership, mentoring, problem-solving, mutual assistance, these are the best parts of faculty culture. How do we recreate that in a moment when we don't even get to see each other? That's when I decided to reach out to my colleague Lacey Barber, a very recently tenured and promoted associate professor of psychology at SDSU who specializes in industrial psychology, that's the psychology of work in the workplace. Her expertise has been an important resource to me in my role. She's the mother of a 14-year-old son, and full disclosure, I have 14 to 16-year-old daughters. I asked her if she'd mind doing a Zoom call with four or five women-identified junior faculty in fields ranging from Africana studies to accountancy to chemistry, and with children ranging from one month to 18 years old. 
Professor Barbara wrote back right away with a yes and five tips. You can find all five at the Faculty Advancement website, fa.sdsu.edu. She shared three of them with us in conversation, and I'm happy to share it with you. Now, a note before we start, I've noticed that the language in research and popular writing around the subject is gendered in a way that might not be welcoming to colleagues who are female-identified or non-binary or adoptive parents. And I want to make it clear that in this space, we welcome faculty of all pronouns who need support. Um, of course, part of the things that we think about as industrial organizational psychologists, which is kind of my background, is both the the work environment issues and individual issues, right, that are in psychology. So I do want to say, one, um, th there's tons of things out there that organizations should totally be doing to, to handle this. And um, in terms of stopping the tenure clock and providing resources and doing their part, like that's just a given. So I'm going to re really be focusing on the, the psychological component of what's going on, why you're, you're struggling getting even trying to do some of your research um, before when we were talking, there's a lot of guilt going around, a little shame. You're not getting research productivity done. And so um, I'm going to focus on why this is normal, <laughs> why um, and kind of start from there and then what we can do to try to kind of build back these these things and what we know is happening with psychology and hopefully helping you see a path forward. So one of the things that I often talk about um, we talk about in psychology is this notion of um, hope and optimism and someone seeing a path for getting things done. So this is the path that I'm offering you um, to try to get there. And so I want to start with um, right now, you know, we're all struggling and especially with parents, we just have this limited amount of time. And I know what you're going through because um, I've been there as well that you know, you have so much of your day just interrupted. It's hard to keep up with what's all going on. We can't have that with research. Research is what we call deep work. We need deep, focused attention. It's a creative activity at its heart. People think that have this idea that that science is very regimented and rule following. It's like doing your algebra proofs and it's not doing algebra proofs. What it is, is you have to put together these complex ideas. You have to sit and you have to ruminate on things. And so this is the deep work that we need high focused attention and creativity to really do well. And so what's going on right now, we know from tons of research that stress, especially high levels of stress, just saps your creative energy. Um, and especially when that stress is uncontrollable. And oh my gosh, what is uncontrollable right now? A world pandemic, having your kids around all the time. Like this is this is peak problem environment that we have going on here. And so um, it is completely normal. It is completely normal to just your brain saying like, I, I can't do that type of work right now. I can answer all these emails, get what I have to do done. And so you know, I, I don't want to work on that type of work. So um, I think what's hard then is how what we do to kind of reboot to try to get into that headspace again and try to get some of that back. First thing you have to do is break the research shame spiral. So shame is actually something that makes you feel worthless. It makes you um, disconnect and isolate from others. You're kind of embarrassed to admit you're not doing the work you need to do. Whereas guilt is 
actually kind of a productive emotion because it's pro-social. It makes you want to reach out and fix it. However, what we find from research is that guilt is only useful if you have resources to cope with it. So guilt is really helpful. It helps us feel more satisfied and it helps us seek out others and get stuff done if we feel like we can cope with it. And guess what? You don't have that right now because you're in a world pandemic. Guilt is not for you right now either. Like these are just not helpful emotions for you because you can't even use them appropriately. So you got to break that. And the one way we know evident, tons of evidence-based interventions that we know from self, uh, psychology is self-compassion. So practicing this idea of self-compassion. So it kind of has three aspects and this is um, being kind to yourself about failures it's inevitable. Yes, I didn't do that. It happens. I'm going to just let it be. Um, considering that failure is part of the shared human experience, that's what we're doing right now. We're all talking about, we all feel like failures right now. We're not getting to that research. And this is a common thing. This isn't really, this isn't even unique to the pandemic situation. We all put our research on the back burner sometimes and everyone's gone through this where they just lost that research mojo, right? And so, you know, this is something, again, to think about, like, everyone's gone through this. And then the last one is being um, attentive to those emotions we're having. So the guilt, the shame, but with an open, non-judgmental mindset, like, yes, I'm feeling that and trying to disconnect from the emotions of it to be like, I acknowledge it. I felt guilty, I felt ashamed, but that's not no longer useful for me. So this is like what I would call the frozen principle, let it go, right? You just have to <laughs> let it go. And so um, that's for all the other parents out there because we've all seen that plenty. So number two, so so once you break that that spiral, because this the whole idea of the spiral is it's going to isolate you more and more and you're going to feel guilty and you're keep going to push things off. So once you've gotten rid of that emotion, that puts you in the space to go seek out those resources you need to proactively use that guilt in the future. So this is the whole seek out social support issue. Um, and so this is kind of like how, what can you do to kind of connect to others to um, really help you feel like you can get back on track to cope well? Because really, like you're in this situation, like how, how can I find some success in this situation? Um, and so this is a huge finding in psychological research is that social support um, at work is not only helpful for reducing your feelings of stress. So that's what we call kind of a buffering effect. Um, so it helps you deal with it, but it also reduces stress in the first place. So it prevents other things from happening because those other things are what sends you down the spiral. Right. And so, um, so really it can kind of flip side where, where the shame can send you into a spiral of resource loss, whereas seeking out support helps you gain more support. So we have these ideas in psychology too, that when you get the support and things that you value, it actually kind of helps attract other support, like builds on each other. And so it helps build you back up. So I'm a firm believer on you want to diversify your support portfolio. So you want to try out a bunch of different areas of support and you might use different people for different sources of support. 
And so one of them is what we call um, instrumental support. So this is actually getting some tasks done. Um, so even just like small favors from a colleague on dreaded tasks. So I work with some colleagues that, um, I know we have different strengths and interests on what to do. Like I know people who like love coordinating and scheduling and manage the people side of things. And I, that like just drains me, that drains me to have to like schedule meetings and, and herd the cats as I call it in academia. Um, I can't handle it, but I will read all day. I will read things and I will edit things. And my colleague, she hates that stuff. And so it's literally like, Hey, would you mind doing this? And I'll do this. Like, we'll kind of exchange things. The other one is emotional support. So we all need that venting and frustration buddy, right? Like I just need to like explain why I'm frustrated with someone who gets me and someone who gets what it's like. Um, so, you know, that connecting um, over coffee, it can be a quick thing. Like I just need to kind of talk about my frustrations and have someone who can show me they care. If you're really legitimately concerned about showing a weakness, which you should open up to people if you can, another way to frame things is go to kind of a senior colleague or someone who you know is like a really good teacher or really structures their lab really well and just say, hey, how do you do that? How do you teach so efficiently? efficiently? Like, what are some tips you have? And people love telling you what they do right? People love kind of sharing that advice. And so you don't have to use it. It might not necessarily work in all um, cases, but it is something that, you know, you can still keep your privacy with some of your struggles, but just be like, Hey, yeah. Like, and with this issue, even, yeah, my class blew up. I haven't taught online a lot. Like, how are you handling this? Understand your boundary management style needs. So this is a, a new were some new terminology I'm going to teach you from psychology. So we have boundary management styles. <laughs> so boundaries. Um, so usually we think of things in terms, it's a little more complex than this, but generally like what's your work to home style. Um, so in a normal non-pandemic situation, we have often studied this on how people like work from home anyway. And we've always done that as academics. Some we've worked remotely a little bit, but how do we actually manage those transitions between doing work tasks and um, home demands, childcare demands, um, other shop, grocery shopping, all these different things. And so what we know from, um, and sometimes we call this work family as well. And so what we know from like work family management boundary styles, people have different preferences and styles. Um, and it's really kind of, we'll say this is on a continuum, but I'm going to talk about it as two groups of people because it's just easier to say. So segmenters like to keep work and family activities separate. So it's like, I'm focused on work stuff now and um, I'm getting a bunch of work things done and then I'll switch over to um, childcare demands. Um, whereas integrators really love blending back and forth. They're like, and they really have no problems. Like, okay, I can answer a kid question, put them on my lap while I'm lecturing, go back and forth. Segmenters are really struggling with that right now because they're in, in this situation in general because they like their own workspace. They like, this is my work time. <laughs> um, I like to call it 
uh, when I talk about it with my husband, I have a cognitive inertia. So when I get locked in on things, it takes me a while to get go back and forth and switch over. And so I can't just, if I lose track of a thread, it's hard for me to go back and I get really frustrated and, and angry. So I don't like doing that. I don't even like multitasking that much. So I'm like the world's last unitasker, right? So um, so it's kind of like related to that idea. But the, here's the thing. This doesn't mean that integrators are very happy right now. Integrators aren't having a good time either. And the reason is, is because what we've seen, even from pre-pandemic science, is that um, no style is inherently good or bad. We kind of manage it differently. But the key is that you have to feel in control about when you're making those transitions and when you're deci deciding to integrate or segment. So even those of you that are more integrators right now, like you're, you're saying, you're you don't have control over that integration right now. I mean, the you know, we are no, nobody likes those interruptions. And so that's where the stress is coming from right now. And so um, really kind of understanding your own style and like where the source of that issue is coming from and what you can do to convey those needs to others you work with, others uh, who you live with, <laughs> if you're sharing those needs on trying to kind of figure out, are there ways that you can give me kind of uninterrupted time or at least for these types of tasks, right? Um, one one thing I've noticed that has made my seg segment like fix my segmenter issues is I found that um, with moving to the teaching and the meetings is that um, all these Zoom meetings and teaching and other things were just getting scattered across my days at all different times. And that is my nightmare as a segmenter, because it's like I have these little snippets and I'm going back and forth, not just between home and work demands, but also teaching research, all these things. And so I like to keep my research tasks together and my teaching tasks together and protect that time in my calendar. And that's usually how I do it. But now people have moved into like, oh, well, you're always available right now, right? Because we're flexible work hours. No, it's, it's not. You still have to exert structure on that. So basically the boundaries that I put up is I will only meet, I have my Zoom days or people days, and I still try to respect that when I keep that together and then have larger blocks of time for still making um, progress on uh, my research. The other thing was moving for me as a segmenter, the thing that made me happy with teaching was to move to a asynchronous video teaching format where I pre-record my lectures and then I save the synchronous meetings for discussions with students with questions. I mean, what kind of suggestion would you give to how to handle the space uh, separation, you know? Because, for example, during this um, pandemic, for example, in our home, you know, we have a very, you know, two-bedroom home and we don't have an office. So, is this, I mean, it's something that works while we, our kids are in a school, daycare, you know, but now that everybody's home, really, like, there is, like, you know, like having the, the space locked down and all that is, is very hard to find. Mostly when you have two people working, you know, when you have a meeting, you're, you know, it's like, so it's, it's very difficult, you know, when that um, bedroom has to become a working space uh, for two people. Yeah. What would you suggest? 
Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things to, to that. And I think that that, that is such a, a great question and comment because this is part of the larger discussion on the, the privilege of space too, in our homes and, you know, how we can use that, that space. And I think that there's always going to be these extra challenges of what do, what do you do when you don't literally have that physical space? And because, um, you probably, I think you're also referring to suggestions where people are like, oh no, you should never work in your bed, you know? So these are common things like, you know, that's your bedroom and you want to separate that from an office, but what if you can't do that? Um, and I will say like, we've converted one of our bedrooms into a secondary office, um, for that, but one of it was like to do a standing, like it's like a standing desk. So it's at the bureau. So it's still not like sitting in bed or anything. But I think when you are also dealing with smaller spaces, you should probably think about the psychology of it in terms of um, just what is in your peripheral vision that might be distracting you to focus. So sometimes you can simulate the idea of personal space with things like um, headphones, noise canceling headphones where you can't hear um, other things going around you or putting up cloth sheets and things like that where you just at least can't see people. And so part of that's just like cutting down on the distraction where, um, you know, you're really trying to monitor because your brain and of course we all have mom brain too. This is like parent brain, right? What's the danger? What's the danger? What are people doing? What are you getting into? And, um, <laughs> and so that's why we have trouble sleeping too, like deep sleep, Un unless we have uh, a partner or someone to help us kind of put that, you know, say like push that responsibility off. Like, no, you are in charge during that time. And then, so I can set this up. And the other side of that too, is like, if, and this is also difficult with younger kids, but, you know, do not speaking of guilt, do not feel guilty to be like, you know, mommy's research time is going to be your watching a couple movies time <laughs> with, with juice and stuff like that. So I think like, it's part of that. I still remember also, I'm thinking like we live, we had the same situation. So I'm, I'm going back to my graduate school days. Um, cause we had the same situation. So we had a much smaller place than two bedroom apartment. Um, and we had to figure out how to make that space as well. And, um, the other thing, especially having a baby was to, um, really kind of time my, uh, my son's rhythm, um, to my work time. So when he would take naps or when he would like, I would try to keep that predictable schedule and say, okay, he's going down for a nap. So that's going to be the, the focused research time. One of my, my complications, cause I, I struggle with this a lot is, um, like I'm actually doing pretty well with the boundaries. My husband normally works from home. So this is a massive invasion on him because he, he has like an office space. So like we have it split and he can give me the time, but we're often both on calls like all day long. So this leads to the children do end up having that block of time in front of a screen. And this is probably more impactful on my younger one versus my older one, but they both tend to have very bad behavior when they have excessive amounts of time in front of the screen. And that ends up with being a lot of contention in the house and me not being stressed and not being able to deal with that. So what are some strategies of dealing with the, the poor behavior that I'm getting from my children because I've placated them in front of a screen for many hours a day? And I'm like, I'm trying not to feel guilt about this, but like, what are some strategies that I could use to try and 
get them back on track to not freaking out or like, I just want to screen all the time. I don't ever want to do my schoolwork. Yeah. And so there, there are a couple like general rules I can say that have worked well for us. But of course, this is always with the caveat of your mileage may vary. And then of course, there's the extra like, I have one when you have multiple, I know they just feed off of each other. And that's even an additional challenge. But in general, one, I would say, you know, screens, um, it, it's pros and cons. Like it's really, it's really helpful for kids for, for learning stuff and making connections. There's pro social aspects of screens. There are anti-social aspects of screens. So I think monitoring what they're doing and when they're doing it and how much they get is kind of more of the issue. And I'm also going to say, um, when I give this advice, sometimes this is just all gone out the window because again, we're in a world pandemic. And so, like, you know, like if, so I, I just think, I'm just going to say, first of all, it, I don't think there's any such thing as too much screen time right now because, because like that you should feel guilty about because like it's, it's not going to ultimately harm them. And is it worth some of the battles that you're going to have? So that's one, but two, sometimes uh, like what we've used, just shift what the screen time is and when it is and what's going on in there. So here's the thing that we've always done with our son. And we started this when he was very young. We were very restrictive on how much screen time he had. And to be honest, he has increased his screen time quite a bit overall and right now. But um, first of all, you shift screen time till later. So that is something you have to earn after you do other things. And so I think it's the idea we've always had that as a privilege. And so we found early on, I mean, that's, you know, as soon as they, if you start the day with screen time, it is game over because that's all they can think about. Cause they're like us too. They're doing all these little tasks and um, in Minecraft and building stuff and trying to get the animals to cross back and forth. And they've, they are doing the same thing we have. They have their goals that they want to accomplish in these games and we are ruining their goals just like they are ruining our goals right so so this is their like quote unquote work time so that's why they're so angry at us and they're irritable because it's just like these little their brains love it too right it's like <laughs> they they get these hits yeah i mean especially with my older one it's mostly fortnite with him right now fortnite, but yeah. the younger for the younger one, he actually has full-on meltdowns because he plays ends up playing Roblox, and then somebody kills him, and then he just has a total meltdown, and then I have yeah. to stop everything that I'm doing and like help settle him. So yeah, that's like, and then so, it's trying to how do I restrict that? How to, like how do I spend all this time getting parental controls on things so he can't do that? So so you're pointing out. So I think part of this is just the the monitoring. So it's like what are the triggers, right? And so the trigger is this game, and he's going to get like what he's going to get goal frustration on and things like that. So one of the strategies that we've always taken, so kids love pushing boundaries, right? They love, they love, like you say, you can have this and then they want that. And so I think it's trying to understand what they're doing in the games um, and what games they're doing and then what other screen times and what you can replace. So here's, here's the trick that, that has worked. Like we, we would let him have quote unquote more screen time as long as it was a learning task. So if you're doing online, um, if you're doing Khan Academy, um, if you're doing computer coding, 
and um, stuff like that, where it's a learning oriented game, you could get a little bit more time and we would allow those. What has, what that has turned into now that he's 14 is he is super into computer coding and he codes all the time and he's learning valuable, amazing skills to the point where like, I don't, I don't mind the screen time because it's like, he's actually building these amazing skills and getting books on Java and C++ and stuff like that. And talking about languages and Python, you know, and it's just stuff I don't know. And so, um, so part of it is, I also had discussions with him about the types of games he was playing. It was very clear. Some of them were more collaborative and pro-social. And then some of them are a little bit more competitive and the competitive ones are the trigger. And so part of that is timing. Um, you know, if I, if I knew, you know, he would do something that would make him upset. So this would happen on Minecraft, right? Cause they'd have, they have that issue called griefing where someone comes in and just destroys all your stuff. And so, um, but there's only certain worlds and this is such like nerdy parent stuff you learn, right. That, that, that happens. And so I was basically like, you, you can't be on those worlds when I'm having this meeting or when I'm having this, like during this time. Yeah. Yeah. That it was like, you can do this, but, th but they're okay with it because because it was like, you still get to do what you want under these conditions. If you don't follow those conditions, then it gets taken away. You know, the strategy, we can only do so much with certain strategies and coping and trying these things out, making our spaces, trying to get a schedule, trying to school, like you have, you know, and, and we're so optimistic, right? We have these schedules and we try it. And the thing is, again, these are unprecedented times. Like that only gets you so far. Um, you are not going to be, you, you weren't trained as a homeschool teacher, you know, like academics are barely trained as college teachers. <laughs> and then you want us to do homeschooling too. Um, and I think it's just, and, and it's, it's the pressure. I think that what Joanna was saying, like, we have this pressure on ourselves to do well. And then we feel like, again, failures, when we don't kind of achieve that that idealized schedule or the progress that we want. And so if I could tie this to, you know, my advice that I give that's like very similar to like the work-life balance issue. Um, so work-life balance is a verb, not a noun. It is not something you achieve and you're good at and I've got this figured out and I just hit the right schedule. I hit all these things and my life is perfect now. We should be calling it work-life balancing. And it is an ongoing process, just like just like balancing your budget, balancing your relationships. You have to tend to it. You have to monitor. You, you set goals. And guess what? You're going to fail at those goals. But instead of saying, like, we never say like, oh, here's my budget. I blew my budget. Oh, well, I guess I'm just not going to figure this out. It was like, no, we, we figure out like, what, what can we do? What adjustments can we do that we have control over? What adjustments can we not do? Cause we don't have control over. And then you just manage, you, pro, you channel all that productive problem solving academic energy to the things you do have control over. And then also and also step back and think, what are your goals right now? Like, what are the lessons you want to teach your family and your kids right now? And I thought about this with my students, right? And the teacher, and I want to teach my students about kindness and resilience and optimism 
And being okay with failure and being okay with not hitting expectations in just an amazing certain circumstance, you know, an amazing circumstances that we're all going through. And we literally are going through these experiences. But my hope is that once we get past all of this, we will also remember these lessons for just the bad days weeks, months that we have due to other things that happen in our life, because those are the lessons I want my kids to get out of this. And I mean, my students too, in terms of how do we, how do we do our best? Yes. I'm more of a segmenter, but I do, I do, I do think like, what is the, what is the objective? What is the lesson that I want to teach? Right. My advice as a workplace psychologist for you all in this situation is how to protect your own mental health and well-being and be kind to yourself during this time. But please know that we are also out there telling your organizations and the academy what they need to be doing to support you and make you feel um, that you also have a pathway to career success given this situation. But I do hope that like, you know, you will find that there are some strategies that you're using right now to manage these things that you will, once the pandemic is over, you will be able to execute further in your career in a more sustainable environment. And so I, I, you know, my hope is that you'll still take kind of those lessons with you. And, um, also, when you're in that space to support others, give it give it back, pay it forward. I hope you heard something today that helps you do your job and get through this pandemic with a little more self-compassion and a little more hope. If you have questions for Dr. Barber, suggestions for future discussions, or would like to be notified if we do more programming like this, please visit fa.sdsu.edu and fill out our contact form.